Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Well, I hope you were standing up for that, because, yes, of course, this time round, Condensed Histories is doing the National Anthem. Or was it? Because this is going to open up a huge can of worms. To discuss that one piece of music, we're going to have to talk about a forgotten war in America. We're going to have to talk about the British Empire. We're going to have to talk about nationalism. And we're going to have to talk about a lot of different countries. So all of this is packed into that fairly short, and I'm going to be honest, pretty dreary tune. Now, the reason why I started off by saying, was that even the national anthem, is because that tune in Britain right now is called God Save the Queen and is the national anthem for Great Britain. However, a hundred years ago in Britain, that would have been called God Save the King. The lyrics change depending on the sex of the monarch. Makes complete sense. So if you're somebody like me, I've always grown up singing God Save the Queen. And at some point she's going to pass away, I presume within my lifetime, at which point it's going to feel weird for me and millions of other people if we start singing God Save the King, because it's just not what we've grown up with. It was actually Winston Churchill, who he lived into the 1960s, that he actually said on the accession of Queen Elizabeth II to the throne, that this was the second time in his life, being a Victorian, to have sung God Save the Queen. There had been a sort of an interim period of around 50 years where he'd been singing God Save the King. An interesting quote from a very interesting man. So let's talk a little bit about this tune. God save the king, queen, depending on which way you want to do it. Take a guess as to when it was adopted by the United Kingdom. Well, the actual kingdoms were united formally in 1707. But prior to that, after the death of Queen Elizabeth 
first, about a hundred years earlier, you finally get the monarchs of Scotland and England, and technically Wales, becoming the same monarchy. So for about a hundred years, there is a republic in there in the middle of all that as well, but for about all that time, the monarchs were the same, but actually the nations were still very much different. So when was it announced? Well, funnily enough, in September 1745, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense until you remember that it was in 1745 that we get the last Jacobite rebellion. Now, if you're like me, there's these things called Jacobites. What is one? Why are they rebelling? What's going on? There's something called the old pretender and the young pretender? What? Huh? Huh? Eh? So to sort of clarify things a little bit, after the Republic that I briefly mentioned before, you know, Oliver Cromwell, all that kind of stuff, Charles II came back. Charles II, he was a merry monarch, he had lots of children, but he didn't have any legitimate heirs to the throne. So when he died, his brother, who is called James II in England and James VII of Scotland, it gets confusing, he comes in and he's pretty quickly kicked out because, again, cutting centuries of story short, he was very Catholic and we just didn't want to have Catholic monarchs in a country that had now become Protestant. So he basically did all the wrong things. I mean, Charles II was pretty Catholic too. He did things like marrying Catholics and stuff like that, but he knew how to play the game. James really didn't. And James is very much like his ancestors, like Charles II, sorry, Charles I, I should say, and James VI or First. All these different titles can get confusing, but they were far more regal. They were far more about absolute power. What Charles II realised is because he'd been asked back into the country after there had been multiple civil wars, it was best to allow Parliament to do most of the heavy lifting, and he had to accept that he didn't have the same power as somebody like Henry VIII. James just didn't get that. He didn't know how to play the game. He could have successfully embedded himself but he got kicked out in something that became known as the Glorious Revolution, which is when another kid, this time a daughter of Charles I, which was William and Mary. Well, Mary was obviously the daughter. She'd married a Dutchman who became forever known as William of Orange. And so we get this, this change of who's in charge. James is kicked out. James obviously feels terrible about all of this. He goes to France. France loves to do anything to annoy England. So now he's got this safe haven. And basically, until James dies, he basically is causing trouble. And that's what who the Jacobites were. They were the people backing Jacob, or James in this case. Let's not go into why they're called Jacobites, but you get the idea. His son, Bonnie Prince Charlie. So the so James was known as the old pretender, but obviously he's getting older. He eventually dies of old age. And then we've got the young pretender, his son. So we've got this completely different branch of the royal family tree that want to get back in power. And they kind of become a rallying point of everybody who's disgruntled with the current people running the country. And Bonnie Prince Charlie tries his luck in 1745 by, in essence, going to Scotland, raising an army and starting some violence. And it's the, the fighting in 1745 that's actually the largest or final largest fight on British soil. I've had a few people say, well, there was a fight in World War II when 
a German bomber crew decided to cause a, a, a stir. Okay, fine, but we're talking about a dozen guys here, maximum. This, like the Battle of Culloden, our major battle. In, in any stretch of the imagination, this is a proper pitched battle with thousands of men running around and shooting and swinging swords, etc. I'm not saying that to denigrate the, the deaths there. But if you like, it was a final hurrah of this dynasty. In the end, Bonnie Prince Charlie, he leaves, he escapes, he dresses up as a woman and flees. And this has been turned into sort of Scottish folklore. Ha ha, he outsmarted those can those stupid English people. And it's like, but that was never the plan. The plan was for him to conquer England and to create himself as the new king. What has all of this got to do with the national anthem? Because during 1745, this song was actually written in 1744, God Save the King. So it was already in, in sort of popular circulation in 1745. And during the time of Bonnie Prince Charlie's uprising, there, there was an extra verse added. I'm going to half sing, half read it, because I really can't sing. But this is the verse that was stuck on at the end in England. God grant the martial wade. May by the might and aid. Victory bring. <laughs> it's, it's four no's, but thank you. May he sedition hush. And like a torrent rush, rebellious Scots to crush, God save the king. Now, you will not find it hard to find very passionate articles still written today. You know, in, in the modern world, people sort of going, ah, oh, the national anthem is racist. You know, look at the way they want to crush Scots. OK, I want to unpick that for a moment. First of all, it was never an official part of the national anthem. And, and you could understand why, if you're Scottish and being forced to sing about how people want to crush me, that would be awful, but that never happened. That is a bit of Scottish national propaganda, deliberately misremembering an event from the past. Secondly, if you've got a pretty, by 1745, James you haven't had a king of this ilk, of, of this of this part of the family for 50 odd years, 60 odd years since James was actually on the throne. You know, this is several generations ago. By, by 1745, you've now got George II. We've now got the Hanoverian dynasty. The Stuarts just don't exist anymore, which is why some people were still rallying around them, because they were the Stuarts had been in Britain a lot longer than the Georgians. But anyway, it clearly society had moved on. This whole thing was incredibly anachronistic and it was almost doomed to fail from the from the offset. You, you, there were undeniably massacres and rounding up of, of people who were part of this Jacobite uprising in 1745, referred to quite often as the 45. And you can absolutely say this is disgusting and terrible and awful. And I think you also have to put this into context that if you are going to lead a rebellion, uh, which is an absolute act of sedition slash treason, you kind of get what you deserve. You also get people saying that the Culloden was a massacre. Well, it was a battle where the English forces did a lot better than the Scottish forces, but it wasn't like the English were cheating. It's just they had more modern technology, better drilled soldiers. Yeah, that's what happens when a well-trained army meets a very passionate, nationalistic, but poorly trained, equipped and fewer numbered army.
Sorry, you know, there's no army's going to go, well, we better not beat them too hard in case it's remembered in 200 years as we were a bit overzealous. That's not what happens in any battle in any history ever. I'm sorry, you know, so sorry, Scots, but this is where I've got to look at the history rather than the passion. But I am going to come back to you because a national anthem. We're talking about 1744 and 1745 here. This is quite late in British history, as, as I've already pointed out. For nearly 50 years, these two nations have been unified. So why didn't we have a national anthem in, well, 1600? Why, why didn't France? France has been absolutely sorted its borders out by, let's say, 1500. Why didn't they have a national anthem? And that's because the idea of nationality is actually surprisingly modern. If you go back 500 years, you would perhaps be, let's say, a, a proud person from Oxford, the city of Oxford, because your entire life you're probably going to be living in and around Oxford. Going from Oxford to London, which isn't that far away, would take you a day's journey, probably a couple of days, depending on how you're getting there. Suddenly, London is a long, long way away. So to think that you've got something in common with a Londoner, and both of these are in southern England, as opposed to, let's say, Leeds or York up in the north of England, those places are as exotic as Constantinople in the minds of a medieval person. So nationalism just didn't really exist. Going back to France for a moment, there was an area in southern France referred to as the Languedoc because they spoke a different dialect of French. Nationalism is actually something surprisingly modern, and when you start overlaying it on things like national anthems, you get all kinds of weird and wonderful problems. So because... God Save the King slash Queen was created in the 1740s. You're also at the time of British imperialism, where the British Empire is beginning to spread out. And indeed, in, in a space of about a decade, we then got something called the Seven Years' War, which really pushes France to the sides and pushes Britain to the forefront. Britain wins this war and further increases their colonial imperial territories. Now, you know, could spend forever talking about, you know, is empire good and bad and what we should be doing or how it should be discussed. But I'm telling you the facts, okay? Britain ended up having the world's largest empire. And so when you've got public officials playing the national anthem, the locals are going to say, okay, that's the tune that means you're in charge. So I'm not going to give you the whole list by any stretch of the imagination. But what's interesting is the tune of the national anthems of these countries for quite a long time, was God Save the King, Queen. Ghana, South Africa, Pakistan, Iraq, India, Nigeria. I think you can all guess. Let's throw Singapore in there as well. These countries today have almost nothing in common, except if you go back 100, 150 years, they were all owned by Britain. So it's unsurprising that these countries would have picked up on that tune. And so for a, a time... There were dozens of countries uh, that used God Save the Queen. The other one that's weird is Liechtenstein, which was never part of the British Empire, to this day still uses that tune. And indeed, in Commonwealth countries. So these are countries that used to be part of the British Empire, are now separate, but still use the Queen as the head of state, somewhere like Canada or Australia. They have their national anthem, like with Canada, it's called O Canada. But they also have their royal anthem. 
So when the Queen is in Canada, they'll play God Save the Queen. But when she ain't there, they'll play O Canada. Gets confusing, doesn't it? And indeed, there are certain state ceremonies when you've got representatives of the royals, but in a Commonwealth country, where they'll quite often, and I know this to be true in Canada, they'll play a few bars of God Save the Queen, and then they'll play a few bars of the actual local national anthem. It gets weirder because I have American family and I remember watching the TV with my American family and I saw the president. This is going back away. I can't remember which president it was. But the thing that really struck me is the president was coming out of the White House. You know, there are American flags everywhere. This is as American as apple pie. And suddenly they start playing God Save the Queen. And I, I turned to them and went, why, why are they playing the British National Anthem? I didn't know the Queen was in America. And they looked at me blankly going, what do you mean that's your National Anthem? I went, what do you mean? It isn't our National Anthem. And they said, it's called My Country Tis of Thee. I went, what? And I basically had to convince them. I ended up having to go onto the Internet. It was very early stages of Internet uh, access. And I had to show them that absolutely honestly, this da, da 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 is what we have in Britain as the national anthem. And so we get to America and its very strange relationship with national anthems. So my country, Tis of Thee, was for a long time one of the main songs played as an American national anthem. Same tune, unsurprisingly, very different words. Now, this is where we come to, can, can you name, here we go, throwing this out here to you guys, can you name the American National Anthem. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, if you said the star-spangled banner, you're absolutely right. Well done, you. Next question... When did the Star Spangled Banner become officially the American National Anthem? Now, let's, just to help you a little bit, you get independence declared in 1776. That War of Independence finishes and is ratified in the Treaty of Paris in 1783. You get the first President of the United States, George Washington, in the late 1780s. So what do you think? What do you think? When do you think... The Star Spangled Banner was officially became the American National Anthem. And that answer was 1931. Now, it had been used for several decades before, and indeed Woodrow Wilson in the, in the teens, he'd actually written out that it should be the, considered the National Anthem, but it wasn't finally ratified until 1931. So pretty much until the 1900s, there were a number of patriotic songs that would be considered the national anthem, of which the Star Spangled Banner was one. I've just talked about My Country Tis of Thee, which was regularly in the 1800s used as the national anthem, but obviously they changed the tune. Sorry, they kept the tune, they changed the words. But here's the thing about the Star Spangled Banner. That tune is also British. It comes from an English drinking society, like an aristocratic drinking society, And somehow this tune was kept. And yet the words are from Francis Scott Key's poem called The Star-Spangled Banner, which is from a very much a forgotten war. I told you I'd mention a forgotten war. This particular war is called the War of 1812. And it is one of the worst named wars ever. Why? Because it started in 1811. Francis Scott Key's wrote this during the war in 1814, and peace wasn't declared, and the final battle didn't happen until 1815. Now, the terrible thing about it is the final battle. Now, the, the, the actual peace was signed and ratified in Europe. Obviously, it's going to take time for the information to come from Europe over to America. And unfortunately, during that time, Britain was besieging New Orleans. And so the final battle was a bloody and failed attack on New Orleans, where one future president, Andrew Jackson, was actually there defending New Orleans against the British. And so the Americans all remember, yeah, this is great, oh, great victory over Britain. Okay, well, most of this war was, well, actually, all of this war was happening during the Napoleonic era. So Britain really had bigger fish to fry. You know, this guy called Napoleon, 1815, oh, we lost at Orleans, uh, New Orleans, boo-hoo, we won at Waterloo. You know, there were just bigger, more important events happening in the world at that time. 
But in America, this has been sort of incorrectly remembered as a sort of defensive victory. Actually, what happened, uh, there was an attempt to invade Canada. It failed miserably. Uh, the British uh, and Canadians invaded and they, they captured Detroit, which at the time was barely more than a fort. And they even got and captured Washington, D.C., the capital city of America, where they set fire to the newly built White House, which they painted white to cover up all the smoke damage from it. So that is why the White House is the White House as opposed to perhaps a more normal color. It sort of stuck afterwards. You have the British to thank in inverted commas about that. So really it was a, a terrible debacle for America and in the reality is no side really won. And Britain, if Britain was, wasn't fighting Napoleon, they absolutely could have sent more forces over there, would have sent perhaps a better general, somebody like Wellington, for example. But no, we had virtually all our forces and all our great generals and admirals, etc., in Europe and not in America. And we still did quite a lot of American butt kicking. Anyway, so the reason why I happen to know that Francis Scott Key was writing this about the War of 1812 is because he was at Fort McHenry. And basically, the, the Royal Navy was outside of Fort McHenry, and Fort McHenry had this huge star-spangled banner, the, the American Stars and Stripes. Obviously, the amount of stars is how many states there are, so there weren't 50 then. Interesting fact, all those modern-looking American flags from World War II only have 48 stars, not 50, because Hawaii and Alaska weren't states in, nine, in the 1940s. So Francis Scott Key actually went on to one of the British ships. Uh, there was a debate about sort of uh, uh, dealing with uh, a, a medic, uh, medical uh, personnel. And, you know, there was always, always discussions around sieges. And basically the, the British agreed that they were going to do what Francis Scott Keyes wanted them to do, but then said, but you've got to stay on the ship because we're about to shell the fort. So you're going to have to stay here and watch it. So he was in the very weird position of being on an enemy ship, watching it attack the fort and the next morning, he wanted to see had the, had the fort fallen, and he saw that the American flag was still flying. So when you get that opening line of, oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light, this is literally what he was thinking at the time about, oh, my goodness, has it fallen? But no, it didn't. So that's the unusual world of the American national anthem. But then you've got something like the French national anthem. So if you're going to get Scotsmen complaining about how gruesome and un unfair the British national anthem is, and I've already sort of talked through the, the misunderstanding of that fact, that La Marseillaise is, I think you're probably going to be unsurprised, is a revolutionary song. You know, if, if we've got it happening in Britain 1740s, chances are when you have the French Revolution, they're going to throw out any of the old, they're going to bring in the new. And indeed, La Marseillaise was written and performed first in 1792. And I want to read out some of the trans... See, this is the thing, when you see people singing their national anthems, you're not quite sure what's actually going on in it. And it, you may have heard about crushing the Scots, but listen to this. They're coming right into your arms to cut the throats of your sons, your women. And in the next verse, let an impure blood water our furrows. 
It is absolutely the most violent national anthem out there. It's a call to action to defend the motherland of France and to let the blood of the enemies flow onto the crops and we're going to kill them all. So, yeah, I'm sorry if you've got a problem with the British national anthem that never technically had a stanza in it uh, about violence. The, the French start with the violence, OK? And it's an incredibly rousing, glorious tune. The weird thing about God Save the King, Queen, look, everybody's entitled to their opinion, OK? I'm giving you the facts, but here's an opinion. I find it an incredibly dreary song. I mean, come on. Can't we have a bit something a bit more upbeat? And when you listen to some of these other countries' tunes, it's like, yeah, that's a bit more rousing. It's a bit more attaboy. So, yeah, maybe we should... Maybe we should have something more upbeat. But in the sense of the French, you, you, this is almost an unfair advantage. They're about to play football. No wonder they've won the World Cup twice. You know, you hear this and it's like they're screaming, I want to kill them all. And then, then they have to perform in the Olympics or in world football or whatever. It's like, yeah, I bet that gets the blood pumping. As opposed to us who are going, Santa Victorious. You know, it's, it's almost like a sedative, our national anthem by comparison. Another fun national anthem to sort of throw out there to, to you guys is the Russian national anthem. Now, interestingly, the Soviet Union's national anthem, really rousing. But the Soviet Union is not the same as Russia. So when the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 1990s, they created a new national anthem because Russia had kind of never really had one. There was a sort of czarist one. And even early on, once again, Russia used the same tune as God Save the King because it was very popular in the 1800s, honestly, out there. But anyway, I digress. So in the early 1990s, they bring out a new song, a new national anthem, and everybody hates it. So today, if you were to hear the Russian national anthem, it shares exactly the same tune and orchestration. You know, it, sh it should be sung by a full orchestra kind of thing of the Soviet Union's national anthem, but the words are completely different. You sometimes even get banned verses of national anthems because if you hear Germany's national anthem, it sounds like the one that it's always been Germany's national anthem because, again, the tune is. But actually, they always start nowadays with the second verse. The first verse is now considered unacceptable because although it pre-exists the Nazi regime, if your opening line is Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles, so it, translating as Germany, Germany, above all others, you know, we are the master race. It plays absolutely into that Nazi ideology, and the Nazis pretty much only played the first verse and didn't bother with the rest of it. So because of that, weirdly, this, this song that was invented before the Nazis has now been tainted by the Third Reich, and so Germany doesn't use the first verse of their completely acceptable, far less violent than France's, national anthem. Hopefully you can see there's a lot going on here. I want to sort of finish off with going back to nationalism. But before I do, ladies and gentlemen, hopefully you know where this is going. And if you haven't done it yet, come on, help me here. I want you to tell one other person about this podcast or post it on a post a link on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, something like that. Please, please spread the word, spread the love. If you can spend 
30 seconds of your time to give us a review, a five-star click or something like that on whatever podcast you're listening to this on, whatever, you know, Podomatic, Podbean, etc. Please, please give us a quick review. Spread the love. The more people we can get interested in this, you know, the more we can build the momentum. It really, really would help us. Thank you. As always, and I actually had somebody come back to me when I did the one about dark materials. I literally had somebody on Twitter going, you talked about that so passionately. I'm going to sit down and read those books now. And that made my day. Thank you so much for trusting me. Maybe send me a tweet to tell me how, if you enjoyed them or if you are enjoying them. That would be great. So yeah, I'd like, you know, I've been talking about nationalism in lots of different countries here. Love to get your thoughts on this. So anyway, I want to go back to nationalism. And as I said uh, earlier, it's actually quite a modern invention. And obviously, it's you can see how quickly you can use nationalism to corrupt people, to dissuade people. It's like, ah, oh, our country is sort of God-given. It's blessed by God. And it doesn't take a leap from that to say that our country's best. And therefore, other countries are rubbish. And this is another route. There are many, sadly, but this is yet another route to ideas of nationalist superiority slash racism. And that's absolutely unacceptable. Uh, patriotism is the virtue of the vicious. That's a, a, a quote from back in the day. Oscar Wilde is who it, we can attribute that to. And it's absolutely true. You know, there are people who want to do terrible things, but say it's all for the sake of protecting our country, our nation. It's like, well, if they're that terrible, maybe we shouldn't be doing them in the first place. But nationalism in a perverse way stops something else bad. And that's empire. Because as you get this rise of nationalism in the 1800s, you start seeing the decline of empires. And there are two empires that got really badly affected by this. One we've already mentioned, the British Empire, and the other one that's far less well known, the Ottoman Empire. Because actually, if you look at the Ottoman Empire, for a long time, everybody was pretty cool with the whole thing. People would literally wear different coloured clothing outfits to say, show, I am Armenian or I am Jewish or whatever. It was sort of like saying, look at this multicultural, multi-religious, polyglot society and we're all underneath the Sultan and everything's kind of going well. We're all making money, we're all safe, all this kind of stuff. But as you get into the 1800s, you get this rise of nationalism and suddenly it's like, okay, who the hell's this sultan sitting there in Constantinople? I'm sitting all the way here in Syria. I've got nothing in common with them. And so, and obviously the same thing in Britain, you get somebody like Gandhi, who's basically, a basic argument is, um, so excuse me, remind me again why England should be running India? You're not even on the same continent as us. And, you know, that's a pretty good argument. It's like, what right does one country have to rule another country? But that can only exist as an idea until you start thinking of a group of people as a country, where suddenly I, I now have more in common with that person living in Leeds or York than I do with somebody who has, does exactly the same job as me living in Ireland, for example. Different country, but actually I could probably relate more to somebody who has a love of history and does sort of business training as a day job in Dublin than just, let's say, your farmer just outside of York. That is a life I can't relate to. But we're sort of kidding ourselves that because we're all from the same country and presumably are likely to speak the same language, then you'll be able to get on with each other. We have a special bond. That bond doesn't exist. It's completely synthetic. But ultimately, as soon as you start getting chunks of your empire saying, we got more in common than the central power, it's like a cancer inside an empire. I'm not entirely sure 
moving forwards in history, we're ever going to see the rise of an empire again. Because what right does, let's say, China, you know, China has tried to be expansionist, but even they have been expansionist in areas where they're saying, look, this used to be Chinese, so we should have it again as China. But China is making no claims whatsoever over the Korean peninsula because they just know that that would be a step too far, for example. Now, if you're saying, oh, you know, Jim, you know, you seem to be down on China, let's also pick America. You know, America actually, after World War II, gave up places like the Philippines. You know, they used to run the Philippines. America did have its own very small empire because it just didn't work. You know, the Filipinos had actually been fighting at the very beginning of the 20th century to overthrow Spanish rule and ended up being ruled by the Americans. That's a bit of a nasty move, America. But then America themselves went, hang on. Yeah, yeah, probably this is the wrong thing. We're out. We're off. We're out of here. So look, every country who's built an empire, suddenly it just doesn't work anymore because the local people don't want to be run by another country. And also with things like, you know, social media, mobile phones, etc. And also things like modern explosives and, and weapons. Suddenly you can get a, a group of people who can cause a lot of trouble. Whereas during the Roman era, for example, if you're a disgruntled Iceni local Briton versus the Romans, with the exception of Boudicca, there aren't a lot of options you can do to cause a lot of fuss. I mean, you will literally have to raise an army to fight against them. And most people that you just can't do that. So with that in mind... National anthems are more interesting than you might first expect. And I encourage you that if you next time you're watching something like the Olympics or maybe sort of World Cup football, something like that, national sporting event, you might want to look into the history of the national anthem of the country they're playing. And you might well find out all kinds of weird and wonderful facts. And, and indeed, what are they actually singing if you translate it into English? That would That's also absolutely fascinating. And I guess my final point is... Whenever you hear La Marseillaise, remember how blood-soaked and violent the French are. Thanks for listening. Another podcast soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.